Well, dear friends, as we um, continue on in the Gospel of Mark, this precious document, this precious text that records for us the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that he did on our behalf and the way that he taught us in what it means to live a godly life and the things that he did for us in terms of his death and resurrection. As we open up this extraordinary book, we're approaching, as you recall, um, the end of the gospel, but more particularly the end of Christ's life on earth as he's nearing the cross. He's in Jerusalem. And the pace of the gospel has slowed down to a barely a, a, barely a walk as uh, we are nearing um, that final day before he'll be crucified. And we're spending time in Jerusalem and his various conversations and predictions regarding the end of all things. And I read to you most of the 13th chapter last week and tried to make it clear to you that most of what Jesus was describing and speaking of, even with the, the most um, difficult language describing the abomination of desolation and the tragedy of the days to come, was describing the years that would pass between his uh, death, resurrection, ascension, and the conquest of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. And the way that that actually uh, sets up a, a, a change for the people of God. It was a pivotal moment in history. It's very difficult to exaggerate the importance of what took place, that transition from being the age of the Jewish people and the, the promises that they enjoyed living in the land with the temple to now God working through Christ into his wider people of God, incorporating all peoples from all nations and reaching the ends of the earth, no longer focused on a city, no longer focused on a building, but now God's power and presence are liberated into his people. And Jesus was inaugurating or beginning uh, to announce the new age in which the church would expand his rule uh, through preaching the gospel toward the end of all the, the, the earth. And this is our call. This is where we are in history. In terms of biblical history, we are in the end times that commenced in AD 70 and will come to its final conclusion when the Lord Jesus returns to claim his bride, to conquer the world, as it were, in terms of claiming it as his inheritance, and all things will be brought to an end. You cannot understand the history of the church, you cannot understand the Christian faith unless you recognize the way that we tell the time the way that we understand our purpose and our place within the storyline of God. And most of what Jesus was describing was that pivotal moment. What would happen in AD 70 when the temple would fall and the church would be let loose, as it were, into all the world and the age of the Messiah would begin. Now, I want to read to you just a few verses to conclude that chapter. And uh, the, th- the theme changes here. It says in verse 32 of the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel, the text is under the video if you scroll down. It says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I want to help you to see and understand that what Jesus is describing here the end of this chapter is no longer the fall of the temple, 
but the very distant uh, from the point when he was speaking possibility or, or certainty I should say of his return to, to, to earth of the second coming as we describe it because the Christian story is not just of Christ's death and resurrection and the way he purchased salvation for us because that's only half the story it's also of Christ bringing all things into renewal when he renews the earth with his return and how that will mark the end of times, how he will judge us, how he'll separate humanity and how he'll bring about an age in which there will no longer be any sin or grief or sadness and will live on this earth in, in the joy of his rule. And this is the Christian story, this is Christian history describing the future, if I can put it like that way, put it like that. And it's clear that what Jesus is doing here is he's changing the subject. Up to now he's been talking about the days ahead, but now he says, but concerning that day. There's a change of subject here. And whereas he was very clear about the time frame, he said that the generation won't pass away until all these things are accomplished. And he was speaking about the fall of the temple. Now he's talking about something that's more vague in terms of the time frame. He says no one knows, not even the son, meaning himself. He doesn't know the time that is allotted for his return. And now, so our, fix, our attention is fixed on something different, something something more distant, something uh, final, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the New Testament, one of the things that you realize is just what a controlling reality Christ's second coming was for the hope, the imagination, the um, desire of Christians living in that era. And it controlled the way they thought about their place in this world. They were not hoping uh, themselves to, to bring about the, all the change that would, was needed on planet Earth, they, they were called to preach the gospel, but they understood that the, our ultimate hope rests upon Christ. So they prayed constantly, and one of the, the things they prayed was a one-word prayer, Maranatha, come Lord, quickly. And it lived in, on their tongues, it was kind of something that tr- just tripped off the tongue, Maranatha, come Lord, quickly. And their hope of the return of Christ was so pervasive and so dominant and such a controlling way of thinking in terms of the way they they saw the world that it even creeped into their evangelism in terms of the way they shared the gospel with people who are not Christian. So you find this, for example, in Acts 17. There's Paul. He's in the city of Athens, a pagan city, a city that's dedicated to philosophy and to the worship of idols and has no knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul begins preaching about the urgency of knowing Jesus. And the way he brings that sermon to a kind of a close as he's preaching in the open air in the middle of that city, he says towards the end of Acts 17, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But he says, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here's Paul, he's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he knows that if he's seen Jesus raised from the dead, it is an absolute certainty that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And he says, this is why you must believe. This is why it's no good any longer to be sort of apathetic or or, uh, to be agnostic about things of faith. He says you must have certainty because Jesus will come again. And when he comes, he's coming as a judge. And this is the way the early Christians thought. It made them urgent. It made them passionate. It made them forward thinking. It made them willing to make sacrifices. It made them uh, always as though they were on the move uh, in the furthering of the kingdom of God. And this is the, the temperature and 
the feel that you get when you're reading the New Testament. And then we jump forward a couple of millennia to our situation in the West today, in the state of Christianity. And I think it would be fair to say that we do not see anything like that state of urgency, that desperation, that passion, that sacrifice. I think if anything, Christianity has become more of a lifestyle choice, more of an option to um, add into your life in order to experience the kind of fulfillment that you want because you need to round out your life in terms of having spirituality or having community or having morality or tradition. And all these things are what motivate many people in our country to call themselves Christian or to go to church, even though, even though that basic commitment is dwindling down to barely anything these days, just the flicker of a candle. And here we are in our present day, and, and I think one of the reasons why Christianity no longer has this flavor or this mood of urgency is because we've lost sight of the clock. We've lost sight of the time. We're no longer conscious of the reality of Christ's return and of the urgency of this present moment in which we live. And so, what's the effect then? Well, I know that some of you are not Christians, so you are, um, you know, in a sense, um, me speaking about the second coming, it's maybe not something you've ever even thought about ever in your life. But Jesus captures the mood of the hour, I think, for people who are not Christian. When he describes the day, the age in which we live as being a little bit like the days when Noah lived, right at the beginning of the Bible. Noah's call was to preach about God's judgment that was coming and to build a ship, build the ark in which people could be saved. And mostly, you know, who's there building it in the middle of a desert, people just ignored him. And Jesus describes it like this. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He said they were passive. There was no, they were not awake. They were not alert to the reality of God, to the shortness of life and to the certainty of God's judgment that's coming. And I think that in many ways that describes the mood in which people live today. There's a kind of vague optimism um, often about the future, the world's getting better, or a realism and that, that just says, well, look, there's very little we can do. Let's just enjoy life. Let's eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And for many people, that precisely describes your philosophy of life. There's no real awareness of death, and there's no real awareness of facing Jesus one day. And so life is about the present. Life is about experiencing whatever happiness you can in this moment. And I don't disagree that God wants us to enjoy happiness, but I don't think that can be the sum total of why you're here. And I would want to urge you and stir you and say, listen, it's important that you wake up. It's important that you're alert and aware to the reality of Christ, to his lordship over your life and to the certainty that one day you'll face him. And it seems to me that nobody really awakens spiritually until they begin to question what really happens. What happens when, I, when I'll meet him, either because I'll die and go see him or because he'll return to claim his world. And when we're not thinking about these things, when we live under the illusion of our immortality, of our long life and our indestructibility and of our affluence and enjoying this present moment, there's no spiritual hunger. There's no awakening that takes place. And this is true for the non-Christian. But what about Christians? The majority of us are already followers of Jesus, but I still make the case, I think, that we're not really conscious of the shortness of life and of the certainty of the end. 
And it seems to me that what Jesus is describing here, the reason why he warned his apostles in this way and the way that he's, he's describing here is because he knew our tendency. He knew that we would default back to a kind of sleepiness, a spiritual lethargy that would characterize us without lack of passion, without, with a lack of passion, with a lack of urgency. And so the thing which he keeps saying here, the command which needs to resonate in your mind, which needs to ring in your heart, which needs to stir you today, is he keeps saying to the disciples, be awake, stay awake. He says it three times, verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 34, therefore stay awake. And he's using different words each time, like synonyms. And he says in the last verse, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is what we need to, to, to wrestle with and to think about what does it mean to be in a state of wake, being awake as Christians, being spiritually alert. And I want to show you a few dimensions of this that occur to me from this passage. I think the first thing to say is that to be awake means cultivating a strong desire to see Jesus. This alertness is about being oriented toward him, being conscious of him, desiring to see him, longing for him. This is the first thing I want to say. What he says here describes it as a master going on a journey and leaving his servants in charge. And there's one particular servant who says he leaves as a doorkeeper there to stay awake. And what does a doorkeeper do? The doorkeeper does nothing except watch and wait. That's all the doorkeeper does. And that ought to be characteristic of us all in a sense that our primary desire in life is to watch and wait and to be interested in what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing and relating to him. A bad doorkeeper is one who... um, maybe chats with people or checks their phone or at this particular moment wears their mask under their chin instead of over their face and neglects to challenge you as you walk into the building. Uh, This is a bad doorkeeper, not really doing their job, but a good doorkeeper is one who's in tune with the moment, who's focused. Here in London, as many of you know, if you you do live here, uh, we have the the grenadier guards who, who stand on guard outside the palace of the Queen. And these men are dressed in their red jackets and their tall bearskin hats, the massive hats that they have to wear through all seasons, including in the blazing summer heat. Although I think um, they no longer use bearskin. I think they've all, uh, they switched to a vegan option these days. But in any case, these guys are indistractable, if I can put it like that. You can go up to them, you can, you can try and uh, tell a joke or distract them or whatever. Their eyes are fixed, they are focused on their job. But of course, if you try and cross a threshold and walk into the palace, it will be within milliseconds that their rifle is pointed at you and the bayonet trained upon you. And of course, this is what Jesus wants. He wants this alertness within his people. In contrast here, when, um, you know, when I was a child, well, it's not a child, when I was a teenager, I trained to be a pool lifeguard. And I, so I worked every week at the side of a pool as a way of just earning a bit of, uh, of uh, spec, a bit of cash. And uh, I was not a good lifeguard. This was a very um, quiet pool. There were very few people who came to visit it. And th- there'd often only be three or four people in the pool at any given moment. And after a few weeks of just basically being bored to tears, sat at the side of this pool, I decided, well, let's use the time well. Let's read books instead. So I, I, I used to sit by the side of the pool reading my books, not really paying attention to what was happening in the water. Now, to my knowledge, nobody drowned while I was lifeguarding at the side of that pool, but I'll be the first to put my hand up and say I was not an alert lifeguard. And you contrast that with the stories we heard that happened in 
2004 when the tsunami uh, broke in upon um, Southeast Asia. And some people were very alert to what was happening right in the earliest signs as the water began to recede rapidly from the beach. And there was nothing visible on the horizon, but they knew this was a warning sign. They began to usher people up to high places before the wave came and did its catastrophic damage. And we heard these stories that emerged from that great tsunami. And Jesus is saying, look, this is the option here. There are those who are dull, distracted, almost asleep spiritually. And then there are those who are alert, in tune with the moment, attentive. And particularly they are attentive toward him. That's, my, that's, my, that's what I want you to grasp at this point. That to be awake and to be alert is watching for him. That's the doorkeeper's role. It's to look out for the coming of the saviour. To be interested in what the saviour, the master of the house is doing. Now, then the question is, well, how do we cultivate that kind of alertness toward Jesus in our lives, in our day-to-day lives? And I, I would say that the first thing is to do with your belief. I think it's very hard to maintain spiritual vitality if doubts have crept in. And if you particularly are not really certain about the fact of Jesus' return one day, I don't think we can maintain spiritual vitality and alertness if we're just full of doubt about about maybe the reality of Jesus or indeed the reality of his certain return. And it has to begin there with a conviction, with an intellectual belief about Jesus. And the Christian, Christian faith, real Christian faith, always starts there. It always st- starts with a, an absolute certainty about who Jesus is, what he came to do, the, the reality of his lordship and the fact that he's coming again to claim you. This is where it starts. And I think we can be absolutely confident about this. And not least, as Paul said in that sermon that I read, that section I read to you from Acts 17, that God confirmed Christ's return by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Christ's resurrection is the historical proof and certainty that if he was raised from the dead, he's coming again. It has to start there. It starts with a belief in him that's intellectual, that is based on conviction, that's based on certainty. But it's more than that. Christian faith doesn't really mature if it, if it remains purely an intellectual thing, purely a matter of your belief. It has to start there. But really, a Christian grows in maturity as their heart is engaged with the faith. And we're speaking here not only of belief, but also of your desire. It seems to me that the spiritual alertness which Jesus is describing here when he talks about the doorkeeper staying awake with their eyes fixed on the road, their eyes fixed on the coming of the master. He's describing here a vitality that ought to be in our hearts, which is more than just belief. It's longing for Jesus. It's longing to see him. It's a desire to be with him. And I think, for example, of this passage in the Song of Solomon. In The Song of Solomon is a love story, but it's been understood all through the centuries as a story, a story of love between Jesus and his bride, the church. And the, the, the person speaking alternates. Sometimes you hear the voice of the, of the bridegroom, and sometimes you hear the voice of the bride. And here the bride is speaking, and she's speaking about her longing to see her, hus- her future husband. She says, On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. You can feel the sadness and the, ang- the kind of panic that's setting in. Where is he? Where is my lover? She says, the watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? She's asking. Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. 
I held him and would not let go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And as I said, this has been taken all through church history as a description of the way God's people are called to love their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that this alertness that Jesus is calling for is really a desire for him, a longing to, to know him, to be near him, to look out for him, to have your attention fixed on him. And I, I don't think this is a, an insignificant issue for us to, to think about and confront in our lives. Because if, if I'm honest, I would say that the greatest difference between one Christian and another is always the degree to which they love Jesus, always, without question. To, to, to think of this negatively, wherever you see a kind of sleepiness settle in, a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual apathy settle into people, the very thing Jesus is warning against, you always see a diminished love for Jesus. It's always rooted in a kind of failure to, to have intimacy with him and worship and adoration and and an interest and study of who he is as a person. And it's therefore, it could be likened to the way long-distance relationships can often, what dooms them, I suppose. When I've known friends who've entered into long-distance relationships, one of the things that they will say is that they've heard so many people warn them, oh, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you can sustain this? The reason being that the physical distance brings with it certain challenges, doesn't it, in terms of maintaining intimacy, in terms of maintaining um, the deliberate nature of the relationship, in terms of staying faithful, not being distracted by others. And of course, this is a picture or a metaphor of what it's like in the Christian life. Christ isn't with us physically. He's not here present. And when you first came to know Jesus, maybe it was like you met him and you fell in love but before long, you feel the, his absence. You feel the distance and that he's not with you physically. He's not here in this room with us right now. And your love for him can grow dull. Your love for him can grow cold. And with that then comes the spiritual lethargy, the sleepiness, the apathy that I'm seeking to, to describe or to warn about. You contrast that with those Christians that you know or those Christians in history, those stories we know of, Believers who maintain passion, vigilance, urgency. What, what is the reason for it? Without a doubt, every single time it is love for the Lord. The longing to know him, to see him, to be with him. And think about the Apostle Paul. When you read about his story, and I've read the New Testament many, many times, and I'm always captivated by this man Paul and the example that he set us in discipleship. What you notice about him is he's absolutely dedicated, he's devoted, he's willing to make sacrifices, he's willing to be on the move, he's willing to pay the price personally in terms of personal cost and suffering. He's full of urgency, he's longing to tell people about the Saviour. You ask, well, what was it? What was the driving passion that kept him spiritually awake through the decades of his, his spiritual uh, through his, the decades of his Christian faith until he died? What was it that ultimately brought him to martyrdom and the willingness to be, cruci- uh, to be killed for his Lord and Saviour? And the answer, without doubt, is love. It's love. It's, it's really that. That's what is the key, if I can put it like that, to spiritual vitality, to alertness, to being awake, as Jesus calls for us to be. It's love. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3. He says, 
Indeed, I count everything. He's just described all his attainments in life. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, all of that is as nothing compared to this relationship. This is the Christian faith. Everything in your life you put on the scales and it weighs, it's as nothing in comparison with this relationship, this knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to underline this for you, friends. If there's one key to being spiritually awake and alert in the way that Jesus calls for, it is a love for for him as your saviour. It is a desire to know him. It is a relationship with him. It's the spiritual vitality, as he puts it in John 15, of remaining in him, of abiding in the vine, of being spiritually nurtured and connected with Jesus directly. This is really the foundation. This is really the key. Now let me show you a second thing. I think also one of the ways we can understand this spiritual alertness can be in terms of the vigilance in fighting sin. This is a second aspect of what I want to show you here. Now, why is it then that he warns us against being asleep? He says, be on guard, keep awake. Be on guard, keep awake. Why does he put it in this language? And I think the answer is that he's not merely talking about apathy that can settle in and coldness towards him that can settle in. And these things are absolutely important. But he's also talking about vulnerability. The way that you become vulnerable when you're asleep. Now this makes a lot more sense, I think, in the ancient world when Jesus was using this analogy. In the ancient world, it was a very different experience, I, I imagine, going to sleep than it is today. When you go to sleep today, you lock the door, and you may have not only a door, if you live in, a, in London, you may have a, a door to your flat, as well as an entry door to the entire block of, of flats. And uh, you feel secure, you feel safe. You feel isolated from the world, and you feel like you're, you're away from any threat. But of course, when Jesus was speaking here, being asleep was the most vulnerable time for anyone because anyone could just walk into, the, into your house. They didn't have Yale locks. They didn't have alarms on the buildings. And so a state of being asleep was a state of being vulnerable. And uh, we know, for example, in Proverbs, when he describes the lazy person who keeps falling asleep, he says that, that, that poverty will come on you like an armed man. He says, when you're asleep, you're vulnerable. And this is one of the things that I think is very key to what Jesus is describing here. What is it that we're vulnerable to, is the question. And the answer is that when you are spiritually sleepy, that is when you're vulnerable to sin and Satan. Now, I say this also because there are a couple of other moments in the New Testament when this idea of wakefulness or being sleepy are used to exhort Christians. And this is a theme that that gets picked up on. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to them, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. He associates being asleep spiritually with sinning. And he says, wake up so that you can stop sinning. In Revelation 3, and this is the voice of Jesus, and he's speaking to one of the churches there, the church in Sardis, he says, I, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, uh, but he says, you're dead. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And again, it's this exhortation, Jesus is saying, it's no good for you to be asleep, you must wake up. And you ask the question, what, what does it mean to be asleep in this situation? 
He says a little bit further down, he says, yet you have a few, a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And there he sets up this contrast. He says, on the one hand, there are people in Sardis at this particular church who are alert and awake and the evidence of it is that they're walking in holiness and purity. And then there are the rest of you in this church who are asleep. And the implication is that you have given way to sin. Now, I think this is very clearly part of what Jesus has in mind here when he says in Mark 13, be on guard, keep awake. Because there's no doubt in the Bible that this sleepiness is associated with sin. And you ask the question, why is that the case? And I think the answer is that in the Christian life, you cannot remain in a steady state. You can't kind of switch to cruise control and then sit back and, and relax. There's no such possibility in the Christian life. The second that you, you're no longer actively engaging, then you are already backsliding. And it seems to me that this is the great danger that Christians often find themselves in. There may be moments where you're spiritually urgent and you're pursuing God and you're, you're wanting to put to death sin in your life. And then for whatever reason you grow distracted or you grow lazy or you grow, you, you grow interested in other things and suddenly spiritual lethargy sets in. And the Bible says it's not like you just press pause on your spiritual growth and you remain in a steady state. What the Bible shows us is that the minute that we're not fighting, we're dying. Because a spiritual life is spiritual warfare. We're fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil, that great trio that are out to kill us and destroy us. So if you're, not, if you're on a battlefield and, you're, and you say, let me just have a quick time out, let me just take a break here. I'm just going to relax for a little while. I need to rest. I need a break. I need a break from church. You know, I'm just going to let my prayer life wilt and die away for a little while. Just take a break. I'm taking a break from, all, from spiritual urgency. The minute that you're not urgent, you're under attack. And you're dying, spiritually speaking. Or to change the analogy, the Christian life is like swimming through a riptide or across a great raging river. If you relax, if you put your head back and decide to float, you are swept away in a moment. Now, it seems to me that this is part of what Christ has in mind when he says, be on guard, keep awake. That there's a great danger that happens for the Christian when they're asleep. They're vulnerable. They're in a state of vulnerability. And this is true not just for us individually. And you may identify with the description that I've given individually. It's true also for us corporately, as a church, as, as a people. You know, we are, um, every church has a kind of spiritual temperature. And the more that we spend time together, the more that we walk in step, either toward Christ or often, sometimes in some churches away from Him. And it seems to me that as we're beginning to regather as a people, Part of our work and part of what's vitally important for us is to help wake one another up because it's very possible that in the six months that we've been in lockdown, some of you have been okay, but some of you, you know, have entered into a state of spiritual sleepiness. Sins that you thought you had dealt with have returned. Distance has come in between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a coldness in your heart. And with this sleepiness comes temptation, comes sin. And it seems to me that, you know, if, if the early days of lockdown were characterized by solitude and, and a moment of brief rest and respite from the craziness of life where we, we had enforced rest, it very quickly moved into isolation, didn't it? From solitude into isolation and loneliness. And this separation from one another has been a very dangerous thing. 
you know, when there's an armada of ships crossing an ocean on the way to war, if a great storm hits that armada, those boats can be scattered to the four winds. They can be in various states of disrepair. You can have one boat that's barely afloat and others that are, that's on fire and all these kinds of things can happen. And then as the storm calms and as, as, as peace settles in, the urgent thing is to regather the armada and to find, you know, to bring repair where repair is needed. And it seems to me that in this particular moment in our church's life, as we're recommencing our, our gatherings on Sunday afternoons, that it's like we're coming out of a storm. And we may find that some of you are in great shape. We may find that some of you, spiritually speaking, are obese and out of shape. And that, you are, you are, or, or you're, that you're wilting, that you're dying, that you're, you're, you're weak and that you're struggling. There is nothing more important for us in this moment, corporately, than to keep awake. And this is, the, this is what Jesus is saying here when he speaks to them. He speaks to them as one people. He speaks to them in the plural. All of you, be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. He's speaking about the way that we help each other to fight sin and to remain urgent in our Christian faith. I want to bring you to a final point, though. I've described for you how I think the foundational thing is the desire to to know Christ. But also being awake is about killing sin. But there's a third aspect to what Jesus is describing here, which I think is also vital. And it is that to stay awake is to remain diligent in the work that Christ has called us to as as believers during our time here on earth. It has to do with the labours that he's put in front of us. Because if you ask the question, why is it that Christ operated this way? Why is it that he left his people on earth while he went to be with the Father and said, I'll come back at some point, like a master going on a journey and leaving his servants in charge? Why is it that the church, the, the history of the church has worked out like this? And the answer is, that Christ has entrusted to us a responsibility. He's given us work to do. This is quite evident from the way Christ speaks here. When he says in verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. Now, I want to remind you, friends, that therefore that to be alert spiritually is to be conscious of the work that Christ has called you to do and to be getting on with it, with the anticipation of seeing him face to face. Now, I know that as Christians, one of the conversations that I've had with many believers over the years is that the challenge of discerning, well, what is it that Christ wants me to do? And I want to briefly offer you an answer to that, or or how to discover that, so that we can be obedient to this. I think that that partly we answer that by understanding the general mission that, that, that lays upon all of us as Christians. We speak about this in general terms, about what are we are called to as God's people during the time of Christ's absence from, from us and our, our in being entrusted with the work that he set before us. And this is summarized really by the Great Commission. The end of the Gospel of Matthew being a perfect summary where he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And similarly, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, as the apostles are about to be launched into their mission, Christ's final words before he ascends, he says that it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So he gives them this standing order. 
while I'm not here, this is the job that you're called to do. You're to go into all the nations and teach them to follow me. And as Christ ascends into the cloud, it says that there were two men by them in white robes. They seem to be angelic manifestations. And they say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? They obviously stood there like gazing into the sky, watching Jesus, and they're not doing anything. He says, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there we have it bracketed. As Christ ascends into heaven, he says, This is the job that the church is to get on with. And they're stood there gawping with their, their mouths open, looking, Where did Jesus just go? And the angels say to them, Get on with the job, he's coming again. And it seems to me that that's the temperature, that's the mood, that's the, the, the thing which controls the entire story of the Christian church as it's told in the book of Acts, the start of the church and which ought to control us. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The church has a purpose, the church has a mission and this mission will continue with as much, as much vital urgency now as it did then until what? Until Christ returns. We're not to stand here gawping. We're not to stand here asking the question, what are we meant to be doing? It's very clear what we're meant to be doing. We're meant to be about the furthering of the mission of Christ in the world. But I also just would add this. This is not just purely about the call of Christians to do evangelism. In a sense, that's just the cutting edge or the tip of the iceberg. Underneath and behind that uh, is, is, or if you imagine the iceberg, if the, if the mission, the evangelism is just the tip, what's underneath that? What's the great bulk of the iceberg underneath is the question you should ask. Or if you imagine it like a frontier in a war, there are soldiers who are at the very front line. But behind that, there are all kinds of supplies and efforts and, and hospitals and factories and everything that goes into the war effort. What is the bulk then of what the Christian church is involved in besides just the, 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 the mission? And the answer is, what Christ said in Matthew 28, to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. In other words, the rule of Christ pervading everything that you and I do with our lives. This is what it means to be diligent in the Master's work while we're here. It means that we are growing in personal godliness. And it means that we are wanting the rule of Christ to come into our families in the way that we are a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a daughter or a son or whatever it is that you are. It means that, you, that the rule of Christ comes into your workplace. The New Testament is emphatically clear that the rule of Christ is to come into the way you do your day job, that you do it primarily for him and not just for your boss or for the salary that you earn. That the rule of Christ comes into the way you serve the church so that the vast majority of what we're called to do with the time, what it means to be diligent in the house and about our work, is laid out in the pages of the New Testament, what it means is to be a disciple, to be thoroughly engaged with the work of Christ in the here and now. And this is what I would describe as the general mission. So that every Christian ought to be able to read their Bible and come away and say, I know what I'm here to do. There's no question mark. I don't need to agonize about this question. I know what I'm here to do. I know what obedience looks like. Let me get on with it. Let me be faithful with what Christ has put in front of me. But I also would just add this. It's not just the case that the Bible says you have a general mission. I think the Bible also says that you, as an individual Christian, have a specific calling. That there is something unique that God has called you to do that's different from every other person who's alive on the face of planet Earth. And I say that partly because I have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, that God has ordained your circumstances, that he has created you according to his design, that he's put you in the specific place at this specific time. As Queen Esther said, we come to the kingdom for such a time as this, 
And you, I, know, I believe that this is true of us. And that God has given you a specific remit that he puts upon you a specific calling to accomplish with the time that he's given to you. And then the question is, well, how do you discover that? And uh, I think this is a big theme. But my brief, the briefest, the brief answers would be, I think that there is wisdom and there is the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is to do with how you can triangulate on your calling in this life, like a GPS coordinate, by understanding affinity, opportunity, and ability. What is it you love? What do you have affinity for? What is it that God is opening opportunities for? The doors that he's opening in front of you? What is it that you're capable of doing? What do you have ability to accomplish? What do you realistically have gifting to do? And when you put these three things together, you hone in on something that, that, you, that God has put it right in front of you that's unique to you, that is your calling, and that God has put in front of you. But I think also there is this mysterious element in the Bible, isn't there, that God speaks to us, that we feel is leading, or that we're meant to get on our faces and pray and fast and know what His will is at any given season in life and know what the next steps are. And I would say I wouldn't, I'm not doing what I do apart from knowing that God spoke to me, that God led me into this, and that God has continued to open, um, make it clear to me His will in the years that I've been a Christian. I think these things all go together. Now, when you put all this together, we think about the general mission of Christians and we think about your specific calling and where God has put you and what it means, whether it's to be a mother in the home or whether it's to be out at work or whether, whatever it is that God's gifted you for. When you put all this together, what, we, what we, we're conscious of is this, that Jesus has given you work to do. And it may be the case that you're busy, but you're not pr- fruitful for him. We need to repent of that. We need to be repent of being busy about the devil's work sometimes or being busy about fulfilling the desires of our own flesh. We need to repent of those things and recognize what is it that Christ has called me here for and then be urgent in that, recognizing that the master's going to come home if he finds you watching TV or if he finds you having a nap or eating in the larder or if he finds you out in the sunshine, sunbathing out in the garden. If he finds you, in other words, not about your business, this is what Jesus was talking about. And it's evident from one of his other parables that he gives uh, when he describes this very situation of leaving and returning. And he says it's like a master entrusting talents or, or portions of resources to, to different ones of his servants. Are you about the master's work? This is the question. Now let me just wrap this point up by just saying that I think it, it seems to me that we can think about this spiritual alertness both negatively and positively. That there are some of us who, uh, to speak negatively, there are some of us who have been asleep in the sense that we haven't been seeking to do Christ's will with our lives. Uh, it may be the case that you're doing very little with your life, or it may be the case that what you are doing, you're doing for, for yourself or for your ambition and not for Jesus. And therefore you become like the one-talent servant in Matthew's Gospel. And it, it says that um, when, when, when he's challenged by the Master as to why he wasn't productive with his time, why he didn't obey, why he didn't do anything with the talent that he was given, with the resources he was given, he says, he says to the Master, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I think at the root of all our hesitation about doing God's will with our lives is always fear. 
We're afraid of what we might lose out on in this life if we serve Jesus instead of serving ourselves. We're afraid of failure sometimes, or we're afraid of people. There's a fear of man. There's always fear somewhere at the root of it, and I encourage you, root it out of your life. Repent of it. Recognize that Christ is calling you to an urgency to do his will. But if I was to describe this positively, the person who is spiritually alive and awake, who is who's going about the master's will with the time that they've been given the briefest of times on earth what we're describing here is someone who wants to live a fruitful life for Jesus and I have already mentioned to you the Apostle Paul one of my favorite moments in the New Testament is a moment when he's saying goodbye to a church that he'll never see again and he's saying goodbye in particular to the elders the leaders of that church and it's the church of Ephesus and Paul's goodbye speech to them is a desire to help them to stay awake and alert to the calling that they have. And he uses his own example. And he says to them particularly, he says that he's not worried about the fact that he's going to be arrested and imprisoned and, and ultimately die for Jesus. And he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's a man who knows his calling. Here's a man who knows what Jesus wants him to do every single morning when he wakes up. He knows what he's put on planet earth to do. And he says, I have only one objective. My objective is not to stay safe. He's just told us that. My objective is not to be comfortable. My objective is not to make sure that I die in retirement with my feet up. He says, my objective is to make sure that I finish my race, that I finish the course that he's laid out for me, the ministry that he's ordained for me personally, which is to testify to the gospel in the nations. And so Paul says, you cannot hold me back. You cannot stop me. This is my calling. Much later, when we encounter Paul in the very last letter he wrote, which is a letter to his young friend Timothy, a pastor, and he says in the very last chapter of that last letter, to this letter of 2 Timothy, he says, I have finished my course. I have run my race. And I think that this is what ought to motivate every Christian and what Christ has in mind here when he says, stay awake, is that Jesus has given you a job to do. He's given you very unique gifts and skills and abilities to do what he's put you on planet earth to do he's given you the energy and the time and the talents for what he's given you and it may be a humble call or it may be a very elevated call it really doesn't matter because you don't get to choose that what matters is that you do his will with the time he's given you because he's coming back i want to ask you as i close are you asleep spiritually have you been drifting like with the currents, are you in the doldrums of sort of inactivity and even perhaps of being spiritually dying? The urgency of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, wake up, wake up church, wake up Christian, wake up now. The grace of God to us is such that it's never too late. It doesn't matter how many years we've wasted. It doesn't matter how much time in our Christian life we spent asleep. It doesn't matter if you've still been holding out and not wanting to become a Christian. None of this matters if today you repent. None of this matters if today you say, Christ, I want to start afresh. The grace of God is such that even when a person says this on their deathbed, 
like the thief on the cross dying next to Jesus. Christ is pleased with that desire to repent. And he wants you awake today. You're not in control of yesterday. All you can do is repent of yesterday. Today is the day. I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, today is the day to turn to Jesus and open up your life to him. And if you are a Christian, you're aware, I've been spiritually asleep all this time. What are you going to do now? Wake up, he says. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you that you have given us the most purposeful existence. The most purposeful existence imaginable. We have people all around us in this world living for all kinds of things. Some of them living for very selfish ends. Some of them living for altruistic ends. But ultimately, all of it is as nothing compared with the great calling of what it means to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that even now, where some of us have been spiritually asleep, where we've allowed ourselves to drift, wake us up, I pray, Lord. Bring about spiritual alertness and vitality again. Help us to shake off the lethargy, especially that's come in through this lockdown living. Be urgent in prayer. Be urgent in evangelism. Be urgent in discipleship and godliness. In serving your people. In working as unto you. Be urgent in all things. Recognizing, Lord, that our time here is short. I pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.